0: attention attention please the camp ojibla history podcast is on the air Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you a classic episode, Bernie Kerman. Bernie was guest number one on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. And we're bringing him back. He's also been remastered, so the audio quality is so much better this time around. We're bringing him back because we have to change the way the podcast episodes are laid out on the website. So going forward after this episode, there will only be the most recent 20 episodes available at any given time. The older ones are going to have to drop off. We're going to find another way to make those available. I think what that's going to look like is probably a flash drive that you'll be able to Purchase through the history website, and then you can have the episodes for yourself permanently. But nonetheless, I wanted to bring Bernie back so that he would be in the rotation of the most recent 20 episodes for those people who might just be joining us coming up on our 50th show. Before we get to Bernie, some fun news. The Brick Project, which many of you took part in, the bricks have been installed And they are amazing. I've only seen pictures so far. I've not made it to camp yet. I should be there by next week. But they are installed at the Collegiate Week bench, the yellow bench. They look incredible. You guys are going to love it. You're going to think it's awesome. So more to come on that. As I mentioned, next week's episode, 50th episode of the podcast, Big Special Guest. No early announcement, though. You'll have to wait till next week to find out. And along with that, big update for the website, the Warriors are going to be updated through the 90s. By the time next week's episode drops, you'll be able to check out all the Warriors going all the way up to 1996. So the Warrior Project getting closer and closer to being complete. Okay, enough. I could ramble on with housekeeping forever, but let's get to it. Classic episode, Bernie Kerman on the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast. Uh, For the record, please state your name and your years at camp.
1: Bernard David Kerman started in 1956. Have not missed a year since. This is 2015, and even when I was in the service, I um, made sure that I accumulated enough uh, leave time to take to come up to camp during the summer, just for a visit, just so I can keep that string going.
0: Nice. I had no idea.
1: That's
0: right. Uh, when were you in the service?
1: I was drafted in March of 1966 and got out of March of 1968. That was the first big call up during wow. Vietnam. Uh, wow! Uh,
0: did you, so you went? You were?
1: I did not go to Vietnam. Very lucky. <clears throat> I stayed in the states. Um, took basic training down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. And my permanent duty station was at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C., so I had it pretty good. Nice.
0: I was very lucky. Yeah, for sure. The reason I brought you here today is to talk a little bit about Camp Ojibwa. Okay. Um, You have been a longtime member of the Camp family, Mm -hmm. so let's go back to the very beginning. Okay. What is the first time that you can remember Camp Ojibwa coming into your brain?
1: My very first day, June of 1956, the very first day... I remember getting off the train downtown Eagle River in those days. Um, there were trucks and buses waiting at the station on Main Street in Eagle River waiting to pick us up.
0: <laughs> it's so funny thinking about Eagle River today and thinking about
1: that. <laughs> right, and even there's a McDonald's there now, it shows you what's, what's happened. <laughs> um, came into camp, and I think for the very first moment that I entered the grounds... I said, this is gonna be incredible.
0: Nice, that's amazing. So, you came up on a train. How did you get recruited? Was there?
1: To be honest with you, I don't know. I think my folks somehow heard about Camp Ojibwa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of the few Southsiders that were, was ever at, at oh, camp. Okay. I was born and raised, actually I was born on the West Side, and my formative years were on the South Side of Chicago. And I can probably remember just a handful of kids in those days, in the mid-50s, from the south side that went to Ojibwe. Sure. Most of the kids in those days were either from the north side of Chicago, Sullivan, Sen, uh, high school, or from Highland Park. Uh, In those days, um, even the suburb of Skokie and Wilmette, uh, Glencoe, were not big then. They weren't populated much. So it was either on the north side of Chicago or way to the northern suburb of Highland Park.
0: Gotcha. So there was um, a lot more city kids.
1: Many more city kids in those days than were were suburban kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, because we were, like I say, they're from Sullivan High School, Sen High School, Roosevelt High School um, in, in those days. And very few of us, just a handful of us from the South Side, and it was really in the South Side. It was from the District of South Shore, the neighborhood of South Shore. Mm. Uh, there were really no South Side kids at Ojibwa, other than a few that were from South Shore.
0: What is the? Who's the first person you remember making friends with at camp? It's
1: hard to say. I think, like like I say, we all met downtown in those days at Union Station
0: mm. in
1: Chicago to take the train up.
0: Oh, of course, because you took the whole train ride
1: together. Right, we took the whole train ride together. And, of course, a little sidetrack, by the time we got up to Eagle River, the train, there were sleepers in those days. Mm. The train was a total mess. <laughs> Everything from um, you know, hamburger wrappers to pistachio nuts and peanuts all over the place. Some of the kids, the older kids, you stayed up and played cards all night. Mm. And, and even at that moment, I felt very comfortable and welcomed. Mm. However, I would have to say that the first person that really made an impression on me at camp, like I say, it was the very first day, was a fellow by the name of Steve Nitzkin. Of course, he went by the name of Dizzy, Sure. And the story there is, I was assigned to Cabin 11, 1956. And in 1956, Cabin 12 was the only new cabin in camp. It was just built the year before, mm. uh, over, the, over the winter and, and, and spring. Mm-hmm. It was the very first, what they call now, the, a new cabin. And me being in Cabin 11... Um, I was very inquisitive of what this new cabin looked like and why why were the other cabins still old. (laughs) So after unpacking my footlocker and getting everything in place, I took it upon myself to walk from cabin 11 to cabin 12 just to see the inside of the cabin, what it looked like. I got as far as the counselor's lodge. I mean, literally, the screen door hit me in the ass. (laughs) and this big guy, and it was even big in those days, by the name of Steve Dizzy Nitskin saw me in the counselor's lodge. He literally walked over to me, and I was just shy of 13 years old. I was just 12, and I was a little skinny kid. I was never big. I was always thin, (laughs) and Steve Nitskin saw me, he knew I didn't belong in the cabin. He literally picked me up. He lifted me over his shoulders like a fireman's carry, took me back to cabin 11, put me down on the floor in cabin 11, and said, don't you ever come in this cabin again. <laughs> and, and I knew from that moment that I fell in love with Steve Niskin. And Ojibwa, I mean, this, was, this was the place, because even as a 12-year-old kid, I had a terrific sense of humor and getting it <laughs> a lot from my father. So that's the first thing, the first guy I really remember, um, a, a tight bond at camp.
0: That's amazing. And uh, is Diz older than you?
1: Steve is uh, maybe six months older than me.
0: Gotcha. Um, so you talked about the cabins there, uh, and you've certainly seen the cabins today. What, how are they different? How are the cabins different? They're,
1: they're, they're not. Basically the the, same. the cabins are, you know, 1 through 12, mm-hmm. are really still the same as they were back in 1956, according to the new cabin of Cabin 12. Now, every year since then, it took about four or five years, and they built two new cabins a year. So it took about four or five years for the rest of the cabins, 1 through 12, to be made new.
0: I see, I see. But after that point in time, they've basically been the same. <laughs>
1: basically the same. Um, the grounds are basically the same. You know, there's some great additions to camp since then. Uh, but, yeah, the, the place looks, looks beautiful. In, in those days, Al Schwartz, of course, still had the camp, Alan Pearl. And they kept the camp to about anywhere from 180 to 190 kids in camp. Today it's a little more. We're squeezing a little more in. Uh, they redid some of the, um, they redid cabin 13. the uh, What was called the dad's lodge in those days is now a cabin, so there are more youngsters at camp. But Alan, uh, Alan Pearl wanted to keep the camp to about 180 or 190 boys in camp, and that was it.
0: Now, in those days, did you, have the option of four weeks, or was it only no. all summer?
1: No. It was strictly eight weeks. Did not have an option.
0: So one train up, one train back in the One train
1: airport. up, one train back.
0: Uh, you mentioned 13 and the Dad's Lodge. So when you were there in the beginning, was Cabin 13 already there?
1: Cabin 13 was there, but the Dad's Lodge was used just what they say it is a Dad's Lodge for visitors to come up. And visitors were allowed to come up at any time during the year in those days. Mm. Today, no, for whatever reason, and I think, it's, I think it's a very good reason, that the current ownership, and especially Denny, does not want any visit up, visitors up there to, other than visiting weekend to interrupt the, the goings-on in the camp. Sure,
0: absolutely. Um, <clears throat> talking about your early experiences at camp, uh, as far as the camp activities... What were some of the things that you think of fondly as your favorites?
1: In those in those days, back in the mid and late fifties, the big sport was sixteen-inch softball, and sixteen-inch softball was unique to the to the Chicago area. Mm. You don't play. I mean, nobody else, nowhere else in the country, is really sixteen-inch softball played. Hi, hi, Dal. You can keep that on the record.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> that's amazing. In,
1: in those days, um, sixteen-inch softball was the game, and sixteen-inch softball was unique to Chicago. Um, so, playing sixteen-inch softball was absolutely—it it, it, was—it was the ultimate. Um, I loved the game. Um, and even in grammar school, back when we were home in, in school, not at camp during the early during the spring and fall seasons, we had 16 in softball leagues in this city. loved playing 16 in softball. If I had to say so myself, I was pretty good. I was always very athletically inclined, so so um, so merging or being uh, in camp, I guess you could say it was lucky for me because I loved playing ball. Mm. And I wasn't betting. I had lettered in high school and, in a couple sports, so.
0: What was your position?
1: I played the infield, I played short and third. And um, one of the ex-owners, Mickey Schwartz, who's the son of um, Al and, and Pearl, of course, <laughs> always calls me as one of the best infielders uh in short and third he's ever, he's ever seen at camp. But I don't know how true that is, but. Well, listen, yeah. no so sense anyways, in arguing. <laughs> but he just loved the game of 16 softball. Second on the list was basketball. Basketball now probably is a more favorite sport to the young kids today than 16-inch softball.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, um, you know, and that's it. But 16 and softball, we, you, you used to have to fight in those days to, to get into a game, whether it was a, you know, a pickup game during rest period or a pickup game when it was free time. All we wanted to do was play 16-inch softball. I must have played thousands of games of 16-inch softball in my life. Not only at camp, but back here, but back at, in Chicago, you know, with the grammar school and high school leagues, the 16-inch leagues. Mm.
0: And then at camp, uh, did the leagues work similar to the way they do now, yeah, or? Yeah, pr-
1: practically the same. So
0: basically broken up by age groups?
1: Yes, and- right. The, the, the kids were broken up into um, fewer age groups. In, in softball, there was just really three age groups, uh, you know the younger kids and the middle-aged kids and then the older kids mm. and that and that was it. Pineapple, peach, and and watermelon league. Today, um, I, I I believe there's there's more divisions yeah. because there's more kids too.
0: Right, that makes sense. And of course, all of that led to the most important thing, which was getting your name on a plaque and <laughs> the mess hall.
1: That's exactly right. <laughs> we only had 180 190 kids max in camp, so they allowed the JCs to play. There are two JCs on a on a team and. In the Watermelon League. Hmm. Uh,
0: what about, uh, not necessarily the league sports, but were there any like yeah. special days of camp? Yeah, you know, there was sp- always
1: a swim meet. There was always a track meet. And by the way, in 1959, I was the senior 1959 50-yard dash champ. And I did run track in high school, too, by the way. And that record at camp stood for about 20 years. Of my- <laughs>
0: no small feat.
1: <laughs> right.
0: But in terms of, like, um, like yeah. Gold Rush Day. Or yeah, we had that, Gold that Rush
1: Day stuff. and Circus Day. Mm-hmm. And Any of those? And uh, all the other kind of Michigas. Yeah,
0: okay. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right. um, what about uh, end of the day? What happens once the games are done for the day? The, the,
1: the, the days at camp in those days, or the times at camp in those days, or the day in camp was more structured than it is today. The kids... From what I see as an outsider now coming back to visit all these years, the camp I don't think is as structured to give the kids more free time, whether that's because of uh, you know, the culture of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the country has changed, whether uh, for whatever reason. It's probably less structured now than it was when we were there, when we first started in the mid-50s, late 50s. There was more structured time, more. I so saw there was a morning period, an afternoon period, and an evening period. And then late evening was also a period, but that was more of um, well, either, uh, I don't know, rehearsing for, uh, for the menstrual show, rehearsing for a stunt night, rehearsing for a song cam and song night, uh, you know, maybe a ping pong tournament or something like that, or a movie. Yeah, but so, so Denny's right. There were probably just four structured periods back then at the most per day as opposed to, as Denny said, maybe six now.
0: Excellent. Um, in terms of the, I guess what I want to say is the end of the day, after after taps, everyone's in the cabin. What does that look like in 1956? If I walk into a cabin at 9 p.m.
1: Oh, you had to have lights. You had to have lights out <laughs> in, in 1956. Lights were out. And uh, today, and Denny, you can hop in again. Um, I, I think the kids are allowed more kibitzing time after lights out than we were. That was a treat like every other night or something um, to was, come around. of oh, Leftover cookies or leftover whatever.
0: Maybe I've heard this. I'm not sure if it's true. You can help fill me in. Was there a process by which you had to earn the treat?
1: Well, or did yeah, you yeah, yeah. Some, yes. If there was a special treat, yes. But other otherwise, no. If there was leftover desserts or leftover cookies or whatever, it would go around to all the cabins. Gotcha.
0: Uh, so that's fifty-six. Now we fast forward a couple of years, and you are your second year in thirteens, right? You okay. Know, in those days, right. you do two years in thirteen. Correct. So second year in not
1: everybody, but for the most part, ninety-five oh, percent of the kids at two years in thirteen.
0: Now, in those days, were I would say by today's standards, the 14ers, the oldest kids in camp, sort Mm -hmm. of a run in the show, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because of the way the JCs were so influential in the leagues, though, Mm -hmm. was it different for you? Was it more important to be a JC or more important to be an oldest camper? Does that make sense?
1: It makes sense. But to me, and again, this is me talking. This is Bernard David Kerman now talking. Um, I I, I, – I wouldn't have cared if I had to, you know, whitewash the, uh, the, the piers every day. It was just so great being up there. Whether you was a camper or a JC or whatever it was, whether you were the mailman, whether you were a head waiter, whether you were, what, what, whatever. It was just great getting up there. And, um, you know, I was born and raised in Chicago. Hated winter. Even as, even growing up here, you know, you went out and you played with your, you know, your friends in the wintertime. You went to the schoolyard, you played uh, tackle uh, football in the snow, but I couldn't wait for spring and summer and couldn't wait to get up to Eagle River. Couldn't wait
2: mm.
1: because it was, you know, it was, it was just fabulous. And like I say, being a you know, relatively athletically inclined, it was just a joy being up there with guys that were really terrific athletes and competing against them. I and mean, we had guys in those days that were all state this or all state swimming or all state, uh, you know, track, all state tennis, uh, all American high school basketball players we had up there. Wow. Um, and you could do it in those days because. I believe in those days the ISHA, the Illinois State High School Athletic Association, was very strict on rules and regulations as far as a varsity athlete in high school is concerned. You couldn't do anything with your high school coach during the summer as the kids now are, I guess, allowed to do. Mm. So as a consequence, a lot of the terrific high school athletes, and for the most part, I'll say it. For the most part, they were the top Jewish athletes in the Chicago area. Um, You know, went up to Ojibwa because they couldn't stay home and play ball anyway. It was not allowed Mm -hmm. if you were on varsity, if you played varsity ball. So we all went up to camp and played against each other, competed against each other, and it was a joy.
0: That's fantastic.
1: My first year as a junior counselor and waiting on tables was... The greatest year at camp for me because we had a group of jc's up there first and second year jc's in 1960 that was incredible incredible personalities incredible athletes high school athletes um, it was unbelievable so my first year as a jc 1960 you know I don't want to go and name names now cuz I would take up the whole uh, this whole time, but they were, we had such a blast uh, with the, with the shtick. Uh, you know the word shtick. Of course. With, with the shtick that went on in the mess hall prior to the kids coming in to eat, because we ate prior to the kids, all the JCs, mm. And the shtick that went on and the joking and the laughing and the, you know, everything was, was phenomenal. And along those lines... Um, we all played ball against each other. We were on different teams, and we competed against each other. You know, it was fierce. But once the ball game ended, it was the shtick started again. (laughs) So it was that kind of atmosphere. So even though every year was great for me, that first year of J.C. for me in 1960 was absolutely phenomenal because the group of guys that were J.C.'s first and second year in 1960 was, was a classic. They were a classic.
0: Wonderful. So you were a J.C. for two years? Two years. And how much did they pay J.C.'s back then?
1: Nothing. Just three hots and a cot.
0: <laughs> how long were you a staff man?
1: First year J.C., second year J.C. <clears throat> senior counselor, senior counselor. 1960, 61, 62, 63. 64, five years.
0: Five years. Jumping ahead a little bit, uh, I guess, you are part of a group of gentlemen who come to camp every summer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We at camp these days lovingly refer to you as the old timer. <laughs> right. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, who they are, how you guys became the group you are, what sort of, when did it begin?
1: All right, I got out of the service in '68. And it was that year, 1968, <clears throat> that I called a bunch of guys up. And these bunch of guys were the guys that I was a J.C. with, that I was referring to. I had such a great time. The 1960s, year. And second year. Also second year J.C.'s up there. <clears throat> I called them up. And... We started going up there um, as you know, the old timers or the boys of summer, whatever you want. And this group, we were, we'd go up there for about, I think we were up there maybe five, six, seven years. And then slowly but surely, this group of guys decided for whatever reason they didn't want to go up anymore and i got another group together to go up and that's currently now the the group of fellows that i go up with mm. that just you know love the place so much that we just and we have such a great time that we go up with now in, nice. you know 2015 and this group we've been together now going up there going back i think we're about 20 or 25 years now wow. of these old timer groups
0: that's amazing i mean it's yeah. Uh, it's like clockwork. We know you're going to be there. And yeah. watching you guys relate to the young campers, to me, is, that's what Ojibwe is.
1: Do you actually see it? Do you actually notice it? Do you
0: Absolutely. S- I mean, it's not, you know, it would be easy for you guys to come up, sit off by yourselves, mm-hmm. reminisce, and you know, sort of be in your own nostalgia and let that be enough. But that's not enough. And it's watching you guys be on the weak bench with a bunch of little campers mm-hmm. who don't have any reason to know you or have any reason to sit around with a guy who's, not their age, right? and the camaraderie and watching the storytelling and seeing the little kids connect to that.
1: I think because we were once campers and counselors ourselves, we know where the limit is, where the line is drawn. We totally stay out of their activities, don't interfere with that, but then when there's some downtime, we enjoy... um, throwing our shtick to these kids, whether it be just passing them on the campus, you know, one going one way, one going the other way, and say, how you doing, how's things? Oh, you go to Ojibwa? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some, you know something like that. Or, um, you know, collegiate week is a big part of camp, and, sure. you know, telling a kid, uh, going up to him, say, you're out of the week. <laughs> 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 you know, jokingly, and they get it, and they, 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 they like the shtick. I th- we're... <sighs> Yeah, I, I, I guess you could say that we're that way, we're a bunch of shticklet, we're a bunch of, of old men that still love to shtick, you know, I guess uh, my wife keeps telling me to grow up and I say, no, I'm not <laughs> going to grow up, this is me, this is who I am, this is it, but we we, we know where the limit is, we know mm-hmm. that, you know, we sit and watch a ball game and uh, we don't make comments. Um you know, we always cheer the kids on. Nice play, and you know, from the sideline. And but yeah, we like to um, get ourselves involved with the personalities, mm-hmm. staying out of their way with the activities. Um,
0: yeah, I think I, I think you guys can't. Um, I hope you don't underestimate how much of an impact that has on camp. I think that the kids, especially the younger kids. If you asked a ten-year-old coming to camp, would he expect a group of guys in their seventies or sixties to come up and like hang out with him? They'd be like, "Why would I ever do that? Why would that ever happen?" And then it happens, and not only is it just another day at camp, but down the road, it it becomes part of this tradition that is camp. One of the strongest things about Ojibwa everyone says, is the tradition, the history. We've been around forever. And, and watching this other generation who were here before, who, were, who was that very kid 50 years ago, telling that kid now, good catch, it just makes the circle complete.
1: Or we get questions too of, you know, what was it like in 1957 here? What was it like? What did you guys do? Um, and we ourselves love answering those questions. I love sitting out in the left center field under the tree in the bench out there and, you know, we're sitting there alone, a couple of us old-timers, and then, uh, you know, one kid camper comes up, and finally, you know, you've got 10, 12 guys there, and we're telling stories. But let me turn the tables on you. Do you ever get feedback from the kids as far as our visit up there is concerned?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been at camp now for 15, 16 years. Hmm. And I've seen a change, I think, in the kids... Um, not a change in the reverence for the past, but a change in the knowledge of the past. When I first got there, a lot of the older kids took a lot of pride in knowing every collegiate week winner, being able to (laughs) recite facts from plaques. But it was about connecting the dots to the past of Ojibwa. And I've seen a little bit of that go away, uh, less Mm -hmm. interest in that. But, so to me, I expect there to come a time when the kids are like, oh, the old timers, yeah, they're here again, whatever. But it never happens. Hmm. And... Why well, we will certainly get into why there is a chant that is go, Bernie, go. Oh, <laughs> to this day, when you guys are there and it's Friday night, you can count on it. You can bet money on it that those kids, one, two, three, quiet please, one, two, three, go, Bernie, go.
1: That.
0: And everybody in the room knows what it means mm-hmm. and what it's all about. So I, I do think they get it. And even if they don't see it in the bigger picture, mm-hmm. they understand the connection. And that's awesome. And it's awesome that they. Want it? They want to go hear your stories. They want to go be part of your shtick. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Okay. But while we're there, All right? Tell me about go Bernie go.
1: Um. When the Schwartz is still in the camp. Um. The old timers. The very first morning we were there, we used to get up kind of late in the evening. Today we get up because we're, we're all retired. We, can, we don't have jobs to go to anymore. So we leave earlier in the day, whereas before we didn't leave until after work on Wednesday to come up to camp. We still had businesses to run. We had you know jobs to do, uh, families to raise. But now that we're older and we're for the most part, retired or semi-retired. We can leave earlier in the day. So we leave at eight o'clock in the morning now, on Wednesday, rather than five, six o'clock at night. So back then, we didn't get up to camp until about one or two in the morning, Thursday morning. And of course, the first that we saw the kids was Thursday morning at breakfast, all right? Mickey Schwartz, who is Alan Pearl's son, Mm -hmm. used to introduce us. Everything was a sit-down meal then, and you were waited on tables, so everybody was in the mess hall at the same time. <laughs> so, and there was, a, there was a center aisle down the middle of the re- mess hall, which there isn't today. Mm. So Mickey used to get up in that center aisle in the mess hall and introduce all the old-timers. But Mickey used to tag something onto the introduction. Some shtick. Some Mickey Schwartz shtick. And that shtick was, and now, you know, you see the old timers are back this year, and uh, let me first introduce um, Jimmy Schwartz. And Jimmy Schwartz was probably one of the greatest shot putters in the history of the country, and he. Um, you know, represented the United States in the 1946 Olympics, shot put, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. My introduction was, and because everybody knew I was, a, I was a track man, Mickey would introduce me as, and now of course you all remember Bernie Kerman, and Bernie Kerman was, uh, you know, a 1972 Olympi- Olympic in Sydney, Australia, as a fast walker. <laughs> And he used to say, Bernie, come on up there and show us how you fast walk. So I used to have to give a demonstration of how fast walk. So, and I would do the fast walk in a certain rhythm where the kids started banging the table in the mess hall to my walking, you know, and go, Bernie, go, and I would just walk up and down the aisle, the center aisle in those days a couple times, and then I would throw myself out the out the mess hall door, and I would fast walk down the road, and they <laughs> wouldn't see me, you know, f- for a half hour. So everybody, when they were introduced in those days by Mickey, was given a tag of what they did. You know, and here's uh, Joe Blow. He was... Uh, you know, one of the great uh, lawyers of all time. He defended, uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa. It was, it was always something. So, my <laughs> shtick was that I was a fast walker. And the kids started banging the table, like I say, and they started to the chant, go, go, Bernie, go. And that's been going on now for maybe 40, 45 years. And that's how that, that came about.
0: So that's unbelievable. Yeah, the kids today. <laughs> that's
1: that's been... the story. But let me tell you a great story. <laughs> this is terrific. The first year that Denny and his, his syndication took over the camp, Denny now started these introductions. You know what I'm getting to, don't you? <laughs> so so Denny says, and now here's here's right Bernie Kerman, and Bernie Kerman Cross is a fast walker in 1972, Sydney, Australia Olympics. And Bernie, why don't you come up here and show us what it's all about? And And then he says, uh, now, Bernie, how do you do this? Is it toe-heel or heel-toe? And I said, well, let me tell you something, Mickey. It's like this, (laughs) and it was Denny. and and This is the first year, so I was so conditioned. To saying, Denny, well, here's how to do it, but it was real. I mean, here, Mickey, here's how to do it, but it was, it was Denny all the time. And I got so embarrassed and so red, And I was <laughs> to, <laughs> I tell
2: him to start walking and don't complain. Right. <laughs> uh,
1: so that's the, that story. That's a little side story.
0: Uh, so here we are, 2015.
2: Can I interject the question? Uh, sure. How did you cope? when
1: things weren't always rosy? At camp? As campers or counselors?
2: I only know you from camp.
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you something, Denny. Um, if things weren't rosy, it was still better than being up there not rosy than rosy back home in Chicago. Um, you know, if... If L or Pearl or something balled you out or disciplined you for whatever reason, um the the embarrassment didn't last long. I mean, you were, you know, you were disciplined, you were balled out, you were corrected in your ways, but it, it didn't last long. Um again, I don't know if it's going back to the way things were like back then as far as
2: the youth is concerned. Some of the, the guys we with them were meaner than the guys
1: today. Oh, how did, you mean how did our, our peers, you know, I've never, this is maybe getting off the, this is getting off a of camp, but you know, he says, I'm so wonderful. I never really hated anybody in my life. There's only one person in the world that I hate. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Sure, that yeah. would start a whole new conversation. <laughs> sure, of course. right. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> There's, um, no, I've never really hated, I, you know, you you dislike people, but as far as hate, I don't think I've ever really hated anybody in in my life. And of course, being up there, it's impossible to hate. I just, you know, it's, I...
2: These are words that are so wonderful, because there should be no hate.
1: Right. I, you know, you can dislike somebody. Sure. But I mean, I can't, sp-
0: I can't imagine anyone goes through their entire camp experience. Without disliking yeah, any, or,
1: or, or in life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But hate, hey, no. It might, one might even say that camp teaches you how to live with that, how to deal with that. I mean, because you're in that space with that mm-hmm. limited amount of people and mm-hmm. no one's going anywhere, not for eight weeks. Right. So if you don't like someone, you got to figure it out. Right. You know, both directions.
1: hmm um, Getting back to um, how... You gentlemen see that when we come up there, how I guess the kids kind of, you know, not gravitate. A, You gravitate to us. They want to hear our stories. Right. Um, I'll tell you a story. And again, I'm not going to mention any names. Um, there was somebody at camp last year. There was a young man at camp last year who was having a hell of a time at camp. He attached to us really pretty good, Mm -hmm. and um, we made him feel at ease, we made him feel comfortable, and he says, I'm not coming back, I hate this place, I can't stand this place. I understand about two, three weeks ago, then he got a call and he's coming back to camp. Now whether it was because of what we did up there, I don't know. But it was also this one child I'm referring to Said no, I'm not coming back. I hate this place. And you know we, you know, says come on, you know, this is great. It's wonderful up here. And uh, you know we, we let him hang with us with us as much as would be without crossing a line, without you know going too much. Uh, you know, stay with us the whole time because we knew he didn't belong here with us. He sure. belonged with his with his peers. And um, I'm not going to mention any names to who that who that is. Well, maybe they'll Plus be listening.
2: your adventures on the pontoon boat? As, on those boat.
1: as old-timers? Yeah. Um,
2: when you go up there and you take a trip.
1: And right, we, uh, we all, like, reserve the pontoon for one afternoon, and um, we cruise the lakes. That's one of the highlights of being up there. We get away from the grounds, but we just you know, cruise the lakes and go around and see what's new on, on the chain up there. And of course, um, our captain for many years was was Diz, was Steve, and that was a tremendous loss. I still get spilkies every time I think of him. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's that's a, a wonderful part of uh, being up there. And Denny's kind enough to let us, you know, take the pontoon out and for the two three hours and cruise the lakes and just relax and
0: yeah.
1: on the lake. Um,
0: speaking of Diz. Steve Nitskin passed away a few, mm-hmm. a few years ago. Now, at this point, um, it's only what three years, three years. now. Yeah, uh, for me personally, that was a big impetus to start this idea. That was a lot of where there. I, I'd always had this idea that camp didn't have enough stuff written down. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a pretty vague, abstract idea. Mm-hmm. But knowing you guys and knowing you know the things we've talked about coming up, sharing the stories, sharing the stick, the shtick. Uh, when he was gone it really galvanized that idea that that's it we don't get his stories anymore not the ones from him and we can't let that happen anymore
1: it also galvanized the rest of us that are left to say you know hey guys i don't care what you're doing when i when i tell you on january 2nd i call denny on january 2nd the first work day of every year and i say okay what are the dates and immediately i forward these dates out to the guys and i tell them i say listen guys who knows how much longer this is gonna go on. There's no excuses for not going up. And I'm gonna get very emotional now and solidify something about Diz and us old timers. When Diz passed and we were at the funeral, um, Stewie, Stewie, his son. Right in the service, the service was ending, so Stewie got up there and uh, he said, This is his last wish was for the old timers to be the Bears." Wow. Stewie said, That's what. His dad told him, just maybe right before he passed, that his last wish was, "I want the old timers of boys of summers to be the pallbearers." And we were just all, Whoa.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Wow.
1: So that's the bond. Yeah. I mean, that really highlights the bond. So.
0: Yeah, and that's it. I mean, I think that's that's camp in a nutshell,
2: right there.
1: That is that connection. That tells the whole story.
2: What would you tell, uh, you know, as I get older as a director? What advice would you give to whoever takes over for me?
1: I, I guess I would say to...
2: Tough question.
1: No, I, I guess I would say to try and keep it in the family. When I say family, I don't mean blood. I don't mean blood family. Try and keep it in the Ojiba family. Then once you're done and you've had it, you, know, you don't want to... You know, you want to take it easy, Denny, or whatever you want to do. Um, I would say just keep it in the family. Keep it in the Ojibwe family, whether it is your blood or whether it's, you know. One of, you know, going back, how, when did you take over camp, Denny?
2: 80, uh, Al retired in September of 1985.
1: Okay, in 1985. 1986
2: in was our first summer.
1: First okay, summer. we were all saying to ourselves, I hope that Al... Keeps it in the family. Mm. And I think I want to pass it on to Denny now, too. Keep it in the family. And we were so thrilled that Denny and some other of his buddies or other people that are affiliated and associated with camp was going to take it over. We were just thrilled. We couldn't have thought of, we couldn't have thought of a better way to hand the camp off Was to give it to Denny, and his, um, his buddies or his contemporaries or whatever.
0: Right. It's hard to imagine someone coming in, new blood. Oh,
1: it's just just, it wouldn't have been the same.
0: Mm -hmm. Speaking about that specifically, uh, I did want I mean I meant to ask you about Al Schwartz. Um, We've mentioned Al and Pearl a few times. As a young man, (coughs) as a young camper, young staff man, did you have a personal relationship with Al and Pearl and or Pearl? Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: Everybody got to know Al pretty good. Pearl was the one with the, with, with the, with the buggy whip. <laughs> um, but you know what? Looking back, and I think a lot of us guys from those days could say, it, could honestly say that Pearl Schwartz was probably the second most influential woman in our lives, wow. second behind our mothers. Looking back on it, she was a wonderful, wonderful woman. We didn't think so then. Again, you know, a 12-, 13-, 14-year-old mind. But looking back on it later on, and I don't mean uh, we didn't have to wait till I was sixty or seventy. Maybe when we were, you know, thirty and thirty-five and forty. Looking back on Pearl, she was just a hell of a woman. She was terrific, but we didn't think so then. Sure, <laughs> you know. When I hear about Pearl, the first thing I always
0: hear is she's tough. Like tough is the first word. Right, and then everything else follows.
1: Tough, but she was fair and she was great and she was she was funny. You know, you are looking back on her, she had a hell of a sense of humor. Uh, she was a bright woman. Um, she loved the great joke. She just loved the terrific joke. She loved the great story. Um, Pearl, Pearl and, a, and a woman, one of her uh, sidekicks used just come up with her every year, a woman by the name of Molly Baum. Um, they used to sit in the lodge every evening, and they would knit <laughs> they would they would do knitting and they would finish, you know, maybe ten sweaters and eighteen scarves for the, during the summer and they would knit. And every time I would go into the counselor's lodge and see them knitting, I would Molly and Pearl knitting. My line was always Molly one pearl two. You know the old knitting phrase, sure. knit one pearl two? <laughs> so they would and Pearl would give out a ah <laughs> every time. <you> know. <laughs> And, and I'll, I'll never forget the, the year that I came up in 19—the summer of 66, first year in the service. Again, I took leave time to come up to camp. And my folks gave me the car to drive up to camp in 1966, and I drove up to camp, and I drove the car up to the office, Pearl and Molly were sitting at the white bench by the mess hall there, around the tree. Mm-hmm. I got out of the car. I walked around the passenger to the passenger side of the car, and I got down on my hands and knees and I kissed the ground. And they all, you know, <laughs> it was so. Yeah, that's 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 camp. That's what it was like.
0: Mm, that's wonderful. Uh, Something you just touched on, but I want to talk about in the big picture, Um, you're now a man of an age that is no longer eight years old going Mm -hmm. to camp for the first time. Camp's been a part of your life for almost 60 years. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What can you say, how can you say your life was affected by camp?
1: Oh my gosh, friends. um, Friends is the number one thing. My closest friends today are the Ojibwe, my Ojibwe friends. Those are the ones I keep in touch with the most, contact the most, more so than high school. Uh, I didn't go to college. I was too dumb. you know. I just was not a good student. I once came home with a report card. I had three Fs and a D, and my dad said, son, you're spending too much time on one subject. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> um, so um, o- my Ojibwe friends, much more than uh, my high school friends or Any other friend that I've picked up during the years is the Ojibwe buddies. You keep in touch with them constantly. Every day, sometimes you talk to them. You email back and forth. You would go to each other's kids' weddings or bar mitzvahs or whatever it is. We're always invited. Every year, when we go up, we always stop at the same restaurant. (laughs) They know we're coming. And on the way back, we always stop at the same restaurant. It's a different restaurant we're going out there, but they all know we're coming. And we, uh, on on January 2nd, when I get the date from Denny, I immediately call this restaurant, both restaurants, (laughs) and give them the dates that we're gonna be there. And they can't wait to see us, even the restaurant.
0: Well, before we wrap up, uh, what I would love is, one of the things I want when I'm at the end of this, in addition to having these sort of interviews and, and people are gonna get an opportunity to listen to us talk Obviously, we'll edit it a little bit, make it nice and tight. But uh, I also want a collection of just stories. So, what I ask of you is tell me a great camp story. Right now? Absolutely. Not the greatest, just one more. Okay, here you you go. Kevin 12,
1: 1957. Um, (laughs) One, two o'clock in the morning. The moon is full. (laughs) It's a warm, warm summer night. Or a warm summer early morning, 1, 2 in the morning. Cabin 12. We were a bunch of rabble-rousers. We woke Al Schwartz up. We woke him up. We're in the cabin just going crazy, yelling and screaming and joking. This is 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. We wake Al up. Next thing we know, the lights go on in the cabin. And there's Al Schwartz in all of his splendor. Standing on the counselor's porch. And he says to us, all right, boys, everybody out of bed and stripped down. Today you couldn't, you couldn't ask a kid <laughs> to strip down today. Of course. You know, the parents will be there suing the hell out of you. <laughs> strip down. We all got out of, jumped out of bed. We all stripped down. The moon is full says, everybody out of the cabin and line up in front of the cabin. We all lined up in front of the cabin. And he says, all right, in single file, start running down the road. And in those days, the road was not paved. <laughs> it was gravel. We had no shoes on. We had no underwear on. We had no pajamas on. We were stripped down. <laughs> Start running the road. We all start running the road, and I'm the last one in line running down the road. And in front of me, I see my other 12, 13 cabin mates with their white asses reflecting off the moon. It was a full <laughs> moon, <laughs> and everything on your body's tan, of course, except for your ass. Well, when I looked up and saw these 12 guys, my, my 12 buddies, running down the road and I'm last in line and I saw nothing but white asses running underneath the archway of Camp Ojibwa reflecting off the moon, I lost it. I started laughing so hard, I could hardly run. I was yelling and screaming when I saw these white asses (laughs) running down the road and Al Schwartz yelling at us. But I lost it. I just, I never laughed so hard in my life. Even as a 13-year-old kid, I laughed like crazy. My stomach started to hurt. (laughs) Classic.
0: Okay. There you go. Bernie Kerman. That is it. Another one in the books for the second time. I'm so happy to be able to bring him back to you with a little better audio quality this time around so you can actually hear the stories. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher at CampoJableHistory.org or just come by the website and check out some of the new updates that are going in this week. Come back next week, the big 50th episode. I'm excited. You should be excited. Everybody should be excited. 50 episodes in, a year into the project. Well, a year into the podcast part of the project, a year and a half into the project. Things are going great. So come back for that. My days here in beautiful Paris, Kentucky are drawing to a close. I'm finally leaving tomorrow. C'est la vie, Paris. But for now... I'm going outside. How was
2: it? It
1: was great. It what was did good. You expect? I thought I thought it was just going to be you here. I didn't. I didn't know we were going to have a professional, and a professional really made it easy. It was. So
2: when I asked you to come over, because we're starting this project, you just said yes. You didn't ask me any questions. You just said yes to
1: me. Yeah, of course I say yes. I whatever. I, I. How can I say? How can because I say well, no?
2: You said, said what it's about.
1: Yeah, but how? Again, going back to the whole thing, I, I can't say no to Denny Rosen for something like this. I, I,
2: you could
1: say no You're, to me for other things. Yeah, like, um, <laughs> like you know, like you you can't have iris. Um, that's, <laughs> you know? That seems reasonable. <laughs> um,
2: you've never said no to
1: me. I've never said no to you because. And I've never said no to you. No, because right, right. The, the, that's the reason because you've been so good. You've been so good to us. It's just, you know, you could have just told us 25 years ago, or th- you know, when you 30 years ago when you took over, you know get fucked. You know I don't need you I up here. I did that
2: with the dads lodge. Yeah, you did. <laughs> used to but be a but but, the dad's lodge. but
1: but we still that you know those couple of years when the dads lodge was taken, we still came up and we stayed in town, didn't we? That's how bad we wanted it.
2: But I didn't want the dads lodge to have I didn't want father's coming up. You, I never looked at you guys as father's being oh. camp. I looked at you as part of the history of camp. Mm-hmm. And as long as you wanted, I was going to make the space for you.
1: See, so how could you say no? I'm just a girl who can't say no. Are
2: you telling us something? <laughs>